morning. We got some major problems this morning, y'all. I'm just telling you. Uh, first of all, the worship folder as the scripture doesn't tell you where it is. Okay? That's what happens at 2.30 in the morning. When I realized, oh, no, I didn't do the insert. Luckily, I got the hour back. So we're, I think, kind of in the middle of the series. You guys are going to have to put up with me twice. Um, as we uh, take a look at um, the next two pieces, uh, leave the past behind, and then next week, I'll, if I have God, I don't need people. Now, the the problem is that what you got to understand about this is that I actually fundamentally believe these three things, these two things. It's still part of my wiring. I really fundamentally believe you should just get it behind you. And I fundamentally believe I don't need people. <laughs> it's really a bad committee value in my head. So let's take a look at um, what this has to say. And, um, again, I would recommend this book. There's some things that you'd have to hope edit a little bit, but, it works. And so um, let me tell you where the passage is so you can write it down. It's Philippians 3, chapter 3, verses 7 through 9 and 13 through 14. And I'm going to read it. You guys have it in NIV or something similar to that. And I'm going to read it in the message just because after I do homework, I I kind of understand where he's going with the message, but I like the everyday language. So um, here's what Paul says in Philippians 3, and it's the core text for this this uh, chapter. And I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about a couple different things, but it says this: the very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the with the trash, along with every else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog done. That's not really what it says, but I can't say to you what it really says. Paul wrote it in the scripture, but I can't say it, what he really said. Um, I've dumped it out with the trash so that I can embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules. When I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting, and knowing Christ, it's God's righteousness. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means, I don't count myself an expert in all this. But I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off and running, and I'm not turning back. 
So let's keep focused on the goal, those of us who want everything God has for us. If any of you have something else in mind, something less than total commitment, God will clear your blurred vision. You will see it yet. Now that now that we're on the right track, let's stay on it. Leave the past behind. Leave the past behind. I don't know how to begin, Jill said, looking troubled. I'm afraid to tell you what happened. I think I'm, I'm afraid you'll think I'm an unfit mother or that I don't love my child. I don't know what it is you did, either town or clowns replied, but I can tell you're very concerned about it. Why don't you tell me about it, and we'll see what I think. So Jill began. Whenever her four-year-old daughter made a mistake, such as spilling the milk or making a mess, Jill would lose control, explode. She would verbally attack her daughter screaming horrible, hurtful things, and calling Amanda name. Then devastated, she realized what she was doing and immediately leave the room. Her guilt overwhelmed her. How long has this been going on, I asked. For about a year and a half, ever since Amanda became enough of a person to move around and make messes and mistakes. They're really not even mistakes. She's so young. I know she's just learning. But at those times, I totally lose control. I don't even think about what Amanda knows or doesn't know. I've lost it by then. And almost and almost don't even know where I am. What have you tried so far? Mostly memorizing scripture about anger, taking timeouts when I'm angry. But most of the time, I can't do that. By the time I know it, I'm angry, and it's all over. What do we do? I can tell you a story about a guy named Joseph story I call Joseph and his bros happens in Genesis 36, 37. Same kind of thing. Joseph is special to his dad, Jacob, because he's his kid and he built, he makes him a robe and, and Joseph has a gift. He has the capacity to discern and he has the capacity to interpret. And he has the ability to dream dreams. His dad gives him this coat, fancy coat. And his other brothers, 11 brothers, are jealous. They go off to tend the sheep. Joseph's behind. Jacob tells Joseph, I want you to go check on your brothers. In the meantime, they're plotting. He comes to one place, check them where his dad told him they were, and they weren't there. He gets greeted by a guy that he sells, and they went to Dokum. 
And when he gets to Dulcom, something ungodly happens. His own brothers, flesh and blood, mob him, beat him up, strip him of the robe and throw him down into a well, a cistern. I had a picture of a cistern. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's like a water well hewn out of, out of the limestone. Um, it's slick. You can't climb back out. Typically, those wells are 15 to 20 feet. Because I was thinking, so he threw him in a cistern, dug out of mud. He just climbed out. And then I did the research. And apparently, if you fall 20 feet, you don't climb out, Randy. Well, 20 feet, it's, it's not going to matter. I'm not climbing out. And there he lay. Then they get another idea. Maybe we shouldn't. His brother Reuben, who's a punk, I think, he, he's protective, but he's a punk because he doesn't stand up to his brothers. He says, we're not, we don't kill him. And so they change their mind. They decide, decide to sell him to the Egyptians. And he's off. They go back and show dad a robe that they dipped in blood of a lamb and said, Dad, does this look like his robe? We don't know what happened to him. And his dad tears his clothes, beats his chest. So I'm asking you, what do we do with Joseph and Jill? What do we do? We tell Jill, get over it. We tell Joe, it's no big deal. Besides, you're in Egypt. You're a prince now. Right? What do I do with you? What do you do with me and our past? Everyone has a past. Two, two minutes ago, that's the past. Before and after you believe and come to Jesus. Before and after you come to understand Helios. Before and after you come to understand grace and mercy and love. You have a past. And our past is riddled with attempts at self-righteousness. I'm going to try and figure out how to be a good guy. Be a great gal, be a good son, be a better husband. But our past also requires ordered man attempts at self-correction. See, we all desire approval from others, vindication, acceptance. And whether we passively or aggressively assert or submit, tell me if I'm right. We're all trying to be right. True or false? I'm going to close my eyes. I ain't even looking. True or false? In our own effort, we correct our history. We create a list of things of do's and don'ts. We create the stops and we create the starts. And we're all trying to be right. We all scramble to the island. We all scramble to land on 
the shore of an island called Good, according to my friend and our captain, Mike. And that place seems to be a place where approval and vindication and acceptance await. But the island keeps moving on us. So let's consider, we're going to consider what Joseph did later, but let's consider what happened to Jill. But you think about her story, and I want you to think about a time in your life, may have been two minutes ago, when the past intruded on the present and stole it away. What happened? I'm going to offer you four ideas, five ideas. The past isn't just the past. It's a pattern of thinking, feeling, and behaving, responding to people and situations. Often not edited by our understanding and our perspective of grace, but often edited by and rewritten by our own desire. And it takes over almost hypnotically, think about it, the last time that happened or the last time you were upset. And our past isn't just a consequence of my who, you know, I could blame my responses on poor parenting, wouldn't I? I could blame my responses on a lot of things. My boss don't like me. My wife don't like me. My kids don't like me. I can do that. Or I can blame it on me. I suck. And you might agree. Maybe. All right. I could do that. But that happens hypnotically. And then we wake up like she did. And we wake up to at least three things. Devastation. Because we're appalled at what we see. Guilt. Because we know who's responsible. And shame. Because we behave or not behave in a disgusting manner. I did say that. I believe you can, the past dictates what I do sometimes and what I don't do. What I commit and what I omit. And then what happens is we drown ourselves in evaluation, and the evaluation looks two ways. I'm either going to resent you, or I'm going to feel overwhelming remorse and condemnation for me. Or, thirdly, I'll do both. I'll hate you, and I'll hate me. How's that sound? At least we all in it. Right, But that then sends me down the river and pulls me further and further away from people. Where we withdraw, then we barricade, and sometimes we punish. Punish you or punish me. Behind the barricade, my committee talks to me. That part of me that is self-righteous and self-corrects also is judge, jury, 
and attorney. It can pretend to be both defense and persecution. And the problem with that is then the cycle happens over and over and over. And we end up steeped in what a Minneapolis counselor named Jeff Van Vonderen calls try hard, give up. Try hard, give up. Anybody do that cycle? If you do that cycle, give me some love because y'all being kind of quiet this morning. Is that true? Right? So those five things happen. Now, I just want you to think about that. Randy, this morning when that thing happened, and you did the murder thing you do. I can pick on him because we got, we brothers, but I can tease him about being murderous because I'm just like him, but I just don't say the stuff he says. So I'm throwing myself under the bus with you, okay? But did that happen? Hypnotically, it took over. Then you wake up to this thing and you're like, oh, man. Then you pull away. Beat yourself up. Then you go swimming in resentment and remorse. And then it happens over and over again. And you're thinking, Jill's saying to either Cloud or Townsend, what do I do? And some Christians and some teachers would say, just step past it. That's not what Paul says. Let's look at what Paul says. So Paul says, Paul says, the first thing he asks us to do is to consider. Consider. Paul tells us to consider, evaluate, and determine your steps, but not through the lens of the committee. All you guys have committees. All you guys have a part of you that talks to you, evaluates you, rates you, grades your performance. He's saying, no, 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 no. Consider, evaluate, determine my steps and their direction and their effectiveness through the lens of mercy and grace, and love, and helios. This notion of seeing a God who sees you at your worst and your best, and his expression doesn't change. He's not a distant God who watches you from afar and is shaking his head with a wrinkled forehead. And he's not a drill sergeant who's in your face screaming and spitting at you for inappropriate behavior. He's a loving father who cares for you, who loves you and attends to you. So we have to consider, we have to have to consider through the lens of grace. And then the Gospels, we also have to consider through the lens of grace. He also asks us to consider, and I'm throwing this in, I think Paul would ask us to consider through the lens of Genesis 2 and 3. 
for it's when God made his evaluation. So I'm not only to consider through the lens that I got a father who loves me and is graceful and in mercy, and that he's Helios. I'm also to consider through the, the lens of the Old Testament when God created the world and he said something that was really interesting. Because I think at the core of our past, we all believe we were alone. And your past could be yesterday. Your past could be three weeks ago, could be 20 years ago. But whatever that marker is, you believe you're alone. And what does Genesis in the first two chapters tell us? I, I think sometimes we miss that. God says something about it. Now, I didn't understand this. Adam and Eve, or Adam by himself, is hanging out with Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And supposedly the Garden of Eden, which is the perfect place, which I'm not sure that's true. And God says something interesting. Anybody know it? He says, not good for man to be alone. Are you serious? I'm with Jesus. Not good for man to be alone. Not good for man to just have God. We need each other. I need another brother that I can tease like Randy. And he can tease me. And he knows my junk and I know his. And it's his reflection of grace that helps me see God's reflection. It's not good for man to be alone. But thirdly, God Paul's challenging us to, to consider understanding the self-centeredness of this world system that's designed and embedded in our cells to create the motivation to try to figure out how to perform it well, how to get it right. Everywhere you look, laws prevalent. Turn the TV on at 2 in the morning. Pay attention to all the diet shows, all the exercise. I seen something yesterday. I was asking my wife about it, some stomach thing where you lean on it and it bounces you up. You know, law. And the, and the marketers know it. They know. The people who are struggling with life are up at 2 in the morning going, man, I need to figure out how do I drop this weight, man. Maybe I'll click some channels and some magic will be on the TV. Or, man, I really need to know how to get along better with my wife. And there's all kinds of shows to my, hey, marriage of heaven, two in the morning. Now, I know because I was up last night, but I really wasn't watching TV. But that's what happens. But also to understand flesh, the socks that Paul talks about, he's not talking about a nature. He's not talking about a a propensity to, he's talking about our body. And our body is operates by whatever's running it. And if my body is managed by me, there's no good that can come of it. If my body is managed by the Holy Spirit, there's still going to be some struggles because we live on this side of the grave. Progressively over time, if I remain, funny thing happens on the way to heaven. You start to change. 
funny thing happens on the way to the kingdom. A funny thing happens when I'm going to meet my Lord. You start to change. Moses seen it. Moses went, visited God, came down. His face was so shiny, people hid from him. Now, I don't see shiny faces yet. I see a little bit of a glow, but not shiny. Y'all don't scare me, right? But as we encounter love, grace, mercy, acceptance, and we can come, our countenance changes. And what we believe changes. Hmm. Interesting. So the past is the moment between now and then. And I think about in that moment, it's gone. I think about Rafiki and the Lion King, which we watched a thousand times when my girls were little, over and over and over. So I started picking people I really like. I like Rafiki because he's sort of the therapist in the deal. So he goes back to get Simba. Simba's, you know, Kuna Matata. He's kicking it. He's, I ain't trying to be no king. I'm out. I'm out, man. Y'all do the thing. I'm out. I'm playing, eating fruit. And he goes and gets him. And Simba says, but I killed my dad. And what does Rafiki do? Bam! Hits him upside the head with his comb. And, and Simba, ow, man! He says, in the past. With that African accent, which I can't do. He didn't say, leave it behind. See, Paul in this passage in Philippians isn't talking about leave it behind. He's talking, he's using the mindset of a race. When you run a race, you don't leave stuff behind. You take it with you. Your shape or out of shapeness, your fat or your thinness, your fitness or your non-fitness, you take it with you. And sometimes the race transforms you. Right? So we're to consider in the context of the work of Christ. So here's my question to you. Halfway into this. Can you and can you deal with your past and all its lessons? Can you achieve? And I want to hear from the whole people on this one. If you take your past and all it's taught you, can you achieve what the gift of God's love, mercy, grace, and helios does? Oh, man, that's weak. I'm out. I'm out. Can you achieve? Can you? You can't do it. You can't do it. I can't on my own effort. I can't even with your effort achieve what God's mercy, love, and grace, and helios can do. Can't do it. Can't do it. But we are to live now, and it's the tension point between then and there. We are both sinner and saint on this side of the grave. We are pushed or bullied by our past and persuaded, loved, and inspired by our future with God in Christ. Consequently, the other thing that Paul, I think, would ask us to do that's a part of dealing with your past is to mourn. And mourning, Dave Johnson has a book that calls, it's called Joy Comes in the Morning. 
M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Joy comes in the morning. And mourning is a combination of sadness and anger and shock that leads you down the alleyway to a street called acceptance where you can come to understand perspective. You can come to realize and understand some things better if we can grieve. The problem is that grieving isn't just something I do internally. For Paul uses the word groan. And I think we're supposed to groan in the presence of the king. Am I off? Travis, am I off? I think we're supposed to groan. You know, Lord, I'm, I got some issues with this thing right here. And I need you to understand that. That's what I was saying to him back when I was going to seminary and I was getting all kinds of grief about dating my beautiful bride. And I was surprised every night when I went to my room and I hadn't got hit with a lightning bolt. I was surprised. See, I didn't know this great stuff then. I was like trembling under the law of it, but I was so mad about the situation. I was like, you know what? I do whatever you're going to do, man. Kill me. He didn't. And I said some ugly things walking around in the South Dakota snow for the first year I was up here (laughs) in 70 below zero wind chill with my coat on, you know. And I'm saying, God, you're shaking my finger. And and it's probably at 1.30 or 2 in the morning. And one of my friends said, man, I seen you outside walking in the snow. I'm like, yo, bad nigga, I can't tell you what I was doing, man. I was having a conversation with Jesus. And he said, oh, that's good. I said, no, dude, it wasn't good. I wasn't like, oh, Jesus, I love you. Praise God. I was not doing that. And you know what? I didn't even know grace then. I was a, I was a, I was a Christian. And in spite of what I knew, God loved me. In spite of where I was, he didn't give me answers right away. But I had some peace when I went to bed. My wife would ask me, now, what did he say to you begin? Because I said, all I know, Lori, is that he's going to work this out. I got confidence he told me he's going to work this out. I don't know. We're 30-some years married, and my, my in-laws love me. So I guess he was right. I was wrong. He was right. I was wrong. So we have to consider this notion of groaning, and we're to groan in the presence of the king because in Hebrews we're told or we're challenged to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Not confidence that I did what I need to do so God has to listen to me, but confidence that God is a loving God and that he will meet your groaning with the mercy and grace that will help you in your time of need. Uh, Now, act as if that's true. What if that's true, y'all? What if it's true that on your worst nightmare, you went to God, knocked on his door, and he opened the door with a smile, and he gave you the mercy and grace you needed? What if I went and I said, I just did it again for the 18th time? And every time he said, son, come on in, don't kick your feet up. It's good to be here. I didn't get the military drill sergeant, and he didn't walk out the room when I came in. 
Oh, you again. You ain't done nothing. I'm out. He, what, if that, what if that was true? What if he greeted me, sat down, put his arm around my shoulders, said, Jay. Now, he would probably call me Jamie because that's what I imagined him calling me, and that's what he called me at one point in time. He would call me by my given name, and I would know who it was. Sit down, dude. I love you. What if that's true? What if that's true? We understand the Father is seeking to transform our notions and our understandings that please our understandings, which we design only to please our stomach and our appetites. He wants to bring it, bring us to a place where our desire is to please him and to bring that which happens in a way that promotes the gospel and pleases and brings other people to the kingdom. Transformation always testifies to the power of love, mercy, and grace. A caterpillar, as it crawls around on a tree, is grounded. It, it'll never fly. It don't even jump. It's got 30,000 legs, so it can't. It holds things tightly. But a butterfly can soar. What happened? He changed the caterpillar into a butterfly. He's going to change progressively if we remain, if we are still and know he's God. We let our hands hang down and we bring our cross with us, the stuff that makes us crazy. He will change you caterpillars, me caterpillar, into a butterfly one day. Let's take a look at what happened with Joseph. I know we got communion today, so. I'm trying to I'm trying to hang with y'all a little bit. Just so let's take a look at what happened with Joseph. So, chapter 37, we find Joseph in a, in a cistern. One of which his brothers have to get him out, but they don't get him out and say, "Sir, we're sorry, man. We're gonna take you home." They they sell him out. Twenty shekels, I think, or something like that. They got for him. I probably would have got more if they'd have sold him with his coat, but they took the coat. Joseph then goes to Egypt and becomes a prince. He calls himself the father to the king of Egypt. And here's what happens. In chapter 45, eight chapters later, Joseph spoke to his brothers. He said, I'm Joseph. Is my father really still alive? But his brothers couldn't say a word. They were speechless. They couldn't believe that they were hear what they were hearing or seeing. Come close to me, Joseph said to his brothers. They came closer. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Listen to what he says, though. Who you sold into Egypt. Next phrase. But don't feel badly. Don't blame yourselves for selling me. You guys reading the same Bible I'm reading. Do you hear what he said? So something happened to Joseph. That wasn't putting it behind. That was taking it with him. And then finding out he didn't need it. Because God gave him something else. 
God was behind it, he says. God sent me here ahead of you to save lives. There has been famine in the land now for two years. The famine will continue for five years, neither plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead to pave the way and to make sure there was a remnant in the land to save your lives in an amazing act of deliverance. So you see, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. He set me in place as the father to Pharaoh, put me in charge of his personal affairs, and made me ruler over all of Egypt. Hurry back and tell my father, tell him, your son Joseph says, I am the master of all Egypt. Come as fast as you can. Join me. and I will give you a place to live in Goshen where you will be close to me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and everything else you can think of. I'll take care of you completely. There are still five years of famine ahead. I will make sure all your needs are taken care of, you and everyone connected to you. You won't want for a thing. Now, how did he get there? He could only be there if he drug his past with him. It's like your heartbeat when you're running. It's like the cramps in your stomach when you're running. It's the tightness in your legs. It's the pothole you dodge. You can only know where you ran if you remember where you ran and realize where you end up. So I would say to you, don't leave your past. Don't jump ahead to the future. But bring it as your cross to bear. And watch God. Change it, transform it, and use it to save lives. Save lives. So we take it with us, that cross. And when we do, we watch God change with real power and transform and challenge us from the inside out. And here I'll finish as we think about communion, the table. I want you to think about bringing your stuff with you. It's at the table where things transform. But I want to read to you. I found this this passage in Ezekiel. It's crazy. So Ezekiel is talking on God's behalf. And he has a message to the shepherds, which is consistent with what we're trying to do. He says, therefore, shepherds, listen to the message of God. As sure as I am a living God, decree of God, the master, because my sheep have been turned into mere prey, into easy meals for wolves, because you shepherds ignored them and only feed yourself, listen to what God says. Watch out, I'm coming down on the shepherds. And taking my sheep back. They are fired as shepherds of my sheep. No more shepherds will just feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep 
from their greed. They are not going to be fed off my sheep any longer. God the Master says, from now on, I myself am the shepherd. I'm, I'm going, I'm going looking for them as shepherds go after their flocks when they're scattered. I'm going after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places they've been scattered into the, into the storms. I'll bring them back from foreign people, gather them from foreign countries, bring them back to their home country. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, along with the streams, among their own people. I will lead them into lust pastures so they can roam the mountain pastures of Israel, graze at leisure. Feed them in the rich pastures of the mountains of Israel. And I myself will be their shepherd, be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make sure they get plenty of rest. I'll go after the lost. I'll collect the strays. I'll doctor the injured. I'll build up the weak ones and oversee the strong ones so they're not exploited. What do you do with your past? You bring it with you. And listen to what the shepherd will do. Listen to what he does for all. So as you go and get communion on your own time, take it with you. And let God use it to transform, challenge, and change you into somebody that reflects love, mercy, and grace and is an instrument used to save lives. Amen? Remain standing. Let me pray. Dear Father, we wonder sometimes what to do, what to do with what we remember, what to do with what's happened to us, what to do with what's not happened to us. And I hear Paul calling us to consider from the perspective of grace what you may and have already done through your son Jesus. Ask us to have the courage to bring it with us. And also to approach you with confidence, knowing that you will greet us with mercy and grace, no matter where we are, what we say, or what we're doing. We are so grateful for what you've done. Instill it in us. Grow it in us. Marinate it in us. So that we will, in greater, greater effort and evidence, reflect your love and your mercy to others. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.